Hey everybody, Adam B. Levine here. A few days ago, I spoke with Mo DeWood from the Wall Street for Main Street podcast, which I've been a guest on several times before over the years. It's always very different talking with someone from outside the cryptocurrency space compared to our normal inside baseball discussions here on the show. So today I'm pleased to share with you that episode and interview. There will be no break on today's episode, so I wanted to mention right now we're going to be trying something a little different for the next few episodes. What are the issues and who are the people that matter to you right now? If you'd like to suggest a topic for discussion, nominate yourself or someone else as a guest host to join us on an episode, send an email to adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. We look forward to hearing from you. And fair warning, this interview was done on an unedited podcast, so I sound a little bit less eloquent than normal. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Wall Street for Main Street podcast. My name is Mo Dawood, and today's guest is a returning guest, Adam B. Levine. He is the founder and editor-in-chief of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Adam, thank you for coming back. Thanks very much, Mo. It's good to be back. So, Adam, I want to start off uh, this podcast talking about Bitcoin. I want to talk about something that happened in the past couple of months. Well, actually, it happened in January. Uh, one of the so-called prominent Bitcoin developers left Bitcoin, and he claimed that he's calling Bitcoin a failure. Uh, his name, I believe, is Mike Hearn. I just want to get your thoughts on uh, him leaving, what implication that has, and Get your reaction on why he's leaving, because he's calling Bitcoin an experiment, and this experiment has failed mainly because of la lack of governance. Sure. Yeah, the governance issue has become pretty much the overarching theme so far uh, this year, and I think that it's one that's going to continue to get a lot of attention. Um, ultimately, if Bitcoin, uh, or cryptocurrency generally, but Bitcoin especially, Bitcoin, because it, it had an anonymous founder, because that founder walked away and... There's really nobody who picked up that legacy of being uh, what you'd call a benevolent dictator, right? Someone who can, for the good of the project, make the right decisions, even if there are people within the project who want to argue about stuff. So that's, that's really the problem, is there's no one person or one group that has the, the mandate to be able to make hard decisions. And so what happens is the community argues with itself. Different elements within the community uh, benefit from having different you know, paths forward for the technology. And so what we found ourselves in, what, where we found ourselves is in a situation where there's really no wrong answer, right? The things that, uh, that Mike was concerned about, the developer who, who quit what you're talking about was uh, named Mike Hearn, and he was uh, a, a core developer in certain uh, parts of the system, but he didn't actually work on the kind of primary uh, project. Right? He didn't work on Bitcoin Core. He worked on other elements within the ecosystem that were really important, but, uh, but he was kind of like an outsider developer. And so that's really what's happened, is that there are, there are two camps within Bitcoin these days. There are the core developers who are um, largely employed by one company and largely pushing towards solutions that would use Bitcoin not as a peer-to-peer -peer money layer between from you know where I can send money directly to you, Mo. In the in in the core vision, um, chances are good that the Bitcoin network would become too expensive for individual users to really use it for you know sending it between each other. Instead, what you would do is you'd have companies that would use it as a settlement layer, acting almost like banks do in the real world now between each other. And this would allow for instant transactions and for fee-free transactions um, uh, when you're using these networks, but they wouldn't be true Bitcoin transactions because they wouldn't actually be happening on the Bitcoin network. So 
that's kind of the difference in vision there is one side is saying the uh, the Bitcoin block size, it's important that it get larger faster because even though there might be solutions out there such as uh, such as, you know, ones that that the other side advocates um, that that's not the point of Bitcoin. The point of Bitcoin is to be a fully peer to peer layer that doesn't involve uh, having to trust these third-party companies. And the nice part about, uh, about using Bitcoin in the way that is described by the core camp is that you don't really have to trust them much, because even though they're, they're you know, dealing between each other, the, the Bitcoin network acts as like a settlement layer where they can even up periodically, and they can do it in a transparent way. So I have a lot of respect for Mike Kern. I think that he's gotten a very bad rap as a result of... Uh, of walking away from the project, um, the things that he complained about, all totally valid. But the conclusion that he drew has more to do with the fact that he's been fighting for his his stake, right, for his view of uh, where the project should go. And he's been advocating and arguing very strongly, essentially to the point where he has sacrificed his reputation within the community. He used to be a very well-respected developer. And because he pushed so hard on this issue that much of the community kind of thought of as controversial, uh, he wound up really kind of sacrificing that and became kind of a pariah. And, I mean, developers are sensitive. Engineers are sensitive. People who uh, spend a lot of time focused on really intricate detail oftentimes don't really have the social skills to be able to express themselves, right, in, in ways that are, are quite, uh, you know, there, there's a different type of intelligence than the emotional intelligence. And that really is what it, it struck me about, um, about Mike Kern, is that he just got frustrated and that frustration had to come out some way, and that was essentially how it came out. Um, I don't think that there's... So, like I said, both sides are arguing for what they think is the best path forward. So it's not like there's any sort of uh, you know, ulterior motives here uh, within the space. It's just that literally there are different ways that this could happen, and people would benefit more from some and less from others. So, yeah, uh, you know, it, it's... It just depends on your perspective, really, whether or not um, he is accurate. If you really, really, really think that uh, this block size issue is the most important thing, then perhaps uh, you'll agree with Mike Hearn. But I think that what we're seeing is that even though he has, you know, he lost that his reputation, he really sacrificed his reputation in this fight. He didn't do it for no reason. The conversation since he kind of took his stand, he isn't the only one. Uh, Gavin Andreessen. Um, uh, who used to be the uh, lo- uh, lead of the core project um, and uh, stepped away to work on kind of other parts of the project about a year and a half ago. Um, he also has wound up sacrificing a lot of his personal re- uh, uh, personal reputation in order to push these ideas forward. But as a result of that sacrifice on their behalf and others, um, uh, as a result of their sacrifice, uh, the conversation has moved from, oh, well, we're just not going to increase the block size. That's not something that we're going to do, to now we will increase the block size, and the question is just how much. So that sacrifice on their part, on the one hand, it's it's tragic because these are very smart developers, and in the case of Mike Hearn, he probably won't be back because he now feels very burned and very unappreciated by a community and technology that he's done a lot for. But on the other hand, they did actually succeed. The fact that we're you know, having the conversation and the fact that the change is going to happen and it's really just a question of how much it's going to happen says that they did move the needle and it did actually make a big difference. So I think that Mike Kern is upset that he personally lost a lot uh, as a result of this, but he won the war that he, he was also a casualty of, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Because uh, right after he uh, posted a blog on Medium.com, Bitcoin uh, went down 15%. So he had a big impact on the Bitcoin market. And we'll we'll go into the the problem with the block side uh, pretty soon. But um, one one of the reasons that people like Bitcoin is because it's decentralized. And now the people out there are complaining that there's no structure, there's no governance. So I'm I'm confused. Is there any? Uh, is it decentralized or is it centralized? This whole experience has shown that it is decentralized. That it's very difficult for any individual or any group or any company to make changes to the system as it stands. There's a, a large barrier in order to do that. And my current, uh, you know, so the, the technology specifically that he pushed was an alternative to the core Bitcoin project called Bitcoin XT that not only had um, the block size changes uh, that they wanted in there, the, the expanded block size, and the other important thing is that it changed the, the burden of... Uh, of momentum, right? Right now, there uh, there is no plan for persistent updates or for persistent increases in the size of how how big blocks can be, what the network capacity can be. So, uh, so what that means is that uh, even if we change the block size now, let's say we double it, which is one of the proposals that's on the table, up to two megabytes um, uh, per block. Um, once you've done that. If we, you know, then double the size of the network, well, then that means that we're going to have to go through this conversation again and argue again about how much to increase it. And so uh, the proposal that they originally put forward actually uh, just had it so that the block size doubled every year. Um, and in doubling, uh, it, it changed it so that you could still make it so that, oh, well, the blocks aren't going to get that big. But the assumption, if nobody did anything, was that the blocks would double in size each year uh, in order to support the assumed growth. And the other important part to realize is that when we're talking about block size, that's not saying that this is how big uh, blocks must be. Uh, it's saying that this is the upper limit. So if there are so many transactions on the network that it's going to exceed a one megabyte block, right now it just kind of sits there and waits for the next block to come by. So it's like one can imagine uh, filling up a bus, right? And every 10 minutes you've got a bus departing. If, uh, if you run out of space on each bus and you keep having overflow from the previous ones, you build up a, pro a progressively larger backlog. But if you have the capacity for you know, double that and you have them leaving 75% empty, then that really doesn't matter. You're not taking up the space. So that's the issue here is that we're at that point where uh, consistently the blocks are full and transactions that should be getting onto the bus are instead having to wait to do it. Um, and that wait gets longer as time goes on because more company. I mean, like that's the thing about it is that the network is growing exponentially. Um, there are more companies developing products that actually build in uh, cryptocurrency as kind of just a function of how they operate. And as a result of that, the number of transactions that are both timely and that need to go onto the Bitcoin, um, you know, network are growing quite a lot. So again, like it's it's a hard problem. Um, yeah, it's it's a hard problem, but there are lots of paths forward, and there aren't really any bad ones. Uh, yeah. So what's what's happening with Mike Hearn? Is he going to start his own cryptocurrency, or just going to venture off with something else? I don't know if you know that guy personally. Um, I've met him a few times, and we've spoken a few times, but I don't have much personal relationship with him. Um, uh, his next project, from what I've heard, is with a company that has some uh, funding from a uh, from banks and a consortium of banks. Um, that'll be focusing on essentially using blockchain technology to uh, to connect banks as again a settlement layer. So there's right. a lot of these ideas kind of floating around. Um, you know, 
developers, I'm honestly surprised that we haven't had more high-profile blow-ups like this because developers often are quite thin-skinned and, you know, have a lot of, like people to respect them, right? The respect part of open source development is incredibly important. And at the point that they feel like they've lost it, then the, you know, the, the, the value of continuing developing really kind of becomes questionable. Right. So let's talk about the uh, problem with uh, the block size. So in, in layman term, uh, we pretty much reach our capacity on the Bitcoin transaction because it's become more popular and more people are starting to use it, more companies are starting to use it. And now there's a lot of uh, back and forth on how much we could increase capacity and should we do it gradually or should we do it by a set amount and et cetera. So there's a lot of back and forth and a lot of people in the industry are waiting to, to you know, come to an agreement on what to do. And it's, it's having a lot of impact in, within the uh, Bitcoin space. So I just want to ask you, why, why can't you just increase the capacity to like 10 megabytes or 100 megabytes so that, you know, you have plenty of capacity and people can do as much of the transaction as they want? Because I'm not, I'm not an expert in this space, so... I'm asking these questions. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, mining is competitive is the answer, is that the process by which, um, you know, the, the process by which Bitcoin replaces uh, all of the people who work at Visa, right, that's done by people around the world running uh, the Bitcoin software on their computers and uh, mining blocks, which means verifying transactions, transmitting transactions, um, and kind of powering the whole back end of the system. And so the problem with larger blocks is that people are in different places on the network. And actually, most of the Bitcoin network, one of the things that Mike Kern commented on in his uh, farewell, uh, is that the majority of the miners actually operate in China. And so the thing about uh, larger blocks, and one of the reasons why uh, there's a lot of reticence about moving to them, uh, is that as you increase the size of the blocks, you increase the amount of time it takes uh, for a miner somewhere else in the world to receive it simply because that, you know, more data has to travel that same amount of distance. Uh, and so what that means is that uh, if you have larger blocks and you are not geographically very close to whoever found the last one, right, whoever's last successfully mined, then you find yourself at a kind of major disadvantage um, to looking for the next one because you don't actually have the ability to start looking for the next block until you've seen, oh, someone just found this one. So that's that's kind of the problem in a nutshell, is that uh, the, the bigger the blocks, yes, it does increase capacity of the network, and it doesn't affect all miners, but it does affect some miners because they don't have the ability to, you know, to have a high bandwidth connection or things like that. So that's the concern, is that it hurts uh, decentralization because it makes it difficult for small miners or for more distributed miners further away from the center of gravity to participate. But you look at the other side of it, and uh, the argument there is that, well, you're getting centralization. It's just of a different kind. Instead of uh, centralizing down to the miners who can afford the best you know, bandwidth connection, um, you're centralizing down to uh, companies that will be acting as banks, essentially, on, on top of Bitcoin and trading uh, credits back and forth between each other. And if I'm using Coinbase, then I can pay you. And Coinbase doesn't actually have to send a Bitcoin transaction. They just have to transfer some balance in your Coinbase wallet. And so, uh, so, so that's kind of the, the two sides of it. On the one side, if we make blocks bigger and we, we will increase capacity, but we increase mining centralization because it 
uh, it increases essentially the the technology burden there. But if we don't increase uh, or we increase too little, then we force transactions uh, off of the peer-to-peer network and onto these powered by the peer-to-peer network, but only at a clearing level. Uh, clearing level. So those are kind of the the two. Um, problems as each as each side sees it, and obviously, depending on who you talk to, you'll get a a, a a differently complex answer because people do see this differently. Right. So, what do you think is going to happen uh, in result of this ongoing debate on how to increase the capacity? Uh, do you think that they're going to increase it two megabyte each year, or do you think some some, some other proposal is going to uh, come up and they can agree on that? capacity and, and move forward. I don't really know to be perfectly honest with you. Um I feel as though the block size will increase, but on the I mean but but it's not a simple decision and there are just a lot of different uh players who who have invested a lot of money into Bitcoin as the in the way it is. And so that's kind of the the fundamental problem. Um Yeah. So what do you, what do you prefer? Uh, I'd I'd love to see larger blocks. Um, you know, I created uh, uh, about a year ago. I started a company that uh, doesn't manage its own blockchain protocol or anything like that, but builds tools to allow you to sell your own types of tokens or uh, set up a store where you accept dollars and Bitcoin and your own gift certificate tokens and things like that. So uh, I've kind of had a first-hand view watching this block size debate over the last six months. Uh, because it's had a real impact on our service. We've had to kind of um, change the way that we handle things because we weren't making it consistently into every block. And so the if you buy something from a digital vending machine, it needs to essentially uh, be able to be sure that uh, you actually purchased it, that your purchase is, is not going to be you know suddenly canceled at some later point. And so that means it needs to make it into the Bitcoin blockchain. So it's not really hypothetical. The blocks are pretty much full at this point, and it's taking longer to confirm stuff. So, but let me kind of tell you why I think that this is a self-solving problem. Um, so when we realized that this was a problem and that block times were going to be getting increasingly unreliable over time, we made the decision to simply stop taking into account uh, block confirmations. And we didn't do it in such a way so that it, uh, we didn't do it in a way that exposed us or our customers to risk. We did it uh, just by kind of taking this trust but verify approach to it. So uh, with Bitcoin, there are two different types of, of, of a transaction, two different types of, of knowing that a transaction exists. There is the broadcast and there is the confirmation. The broadcast doesn't require any time at all. It's basically how fast do you, does your wallet hear about it when my wallet uh, shares the transaction to the network? So that doesn't say that it actually is going to make it into a, into, a, into a block and become a not, an irreversible transaction. But... Um, yeah, so it doesn't mean that it's going to make it into a block and become an irreversible transaction, um, but it does mean that the person who sent the payment had all of the cryptographic credentials to do so because they couldn't have created the payment and broadcast it to the network if they didn't have those credentials. So you have to trust, but you don't have to trust that much. You just have to trust that uh, they're not going to attempt on the back end to do something crazy. So uh, as a result of that, it doesn't really matter to our services how fast confirmations are. It matters to the customer in terms of how fast they get their product delivered, which is uh, usually a token at the end. Um, but as far as they're concerned, the customer doesn't have to wait at all for uh, for any confirmations. They just have to uh, the the service just has to see that they sent that they sent one. They broadcast one to the network, 
um, and then assume and communicate with them over email, actually, uh, if there's going to be some sort of follow-up needed or if a payment fails or something like that. So what happens in Bitcoin and what happens in all of these decentralized kind of uh, permissionless systems is that if there's a problem that exists and it's not being addressed by the actual protocol, then the software solutions that are building on top of it develop that solution for themselves. And mo uh, many times it's not as good as it would be if it was in the protocol. Um, and you wind up with really hacky stuff a lot of time, but it works and it solves the problem. And that's what happens with Bitcoin is it sort of doesn't matter what the uh, developers really want at the end of the day. If this is really a problem, and I think it is, uh, then it's going to get solved, whether it's by the Bitcoin team or a different team or, uh, you know, companies building on top of Bitcoin or whatever. So it's, again, sort of doesn't matter. It's just a question of do you think that the currency or the project is going to fall apart? If you do, then probably, you know, it's, it's not the right place for you to be. But if you don't, then you can take kind of a longer term perspective and say, all right, well, chances are pretty good that they're going to come to some reasonable conclusion because otherwise one group will go off and create their own currency and then you've got a, a smaller, less valuable network for each. So the incentives are very, very high to find a solution to this, both because it's a real problem and because the alternative is a smaller network for each. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens with the... Uh block side for Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So I want to shift gears here and talk about the blockchain technology that you mentioned earlier in the podcast. So there's a lot of uh, talk about the blockchain technology starting to become a little bit more mainstream. Uh, for example, uh, Blythe Masters, who used to be the head of commodities at JP Morgan, started her own consulting firm, and now she's trying to implement blockchain technology for various financial institutions and Wall Street banks. But uh, I just want to ask you, are there any major hurdles before blockchain technology can become fully mainstream? Uh, normalization. I mean, that's really what it comes down to is that this technology has been so new to this point that it's been very difficult for people to see the application of it, right? Because especially when you're talking about something like money, I mean, this is, you know, I told you this the first time we talked, people don't understand the problems with it. They don't understand why the money that we use now isn't good money, or at least they, they, they understand it better now than they used to. But still, money is this really abstract thing. And so the blockchain, well, that's just a record-keeping instrument. And it doesn't compete with global currencies. And it doesn't have kind of all of the, the legacy baggage it's funny, I'm using legacy to refer to Bitcoin, <laughs> uh, but it doesn't have some of the baggage that people perceive. And so the idea has been, well, we can take the advantages that Bitcoin introduced, but without the baggage. And, you know, uh, I, I was quite young when the Internet was getting started. Uh, I first got online, you know, 96 or so. And uh, so I, I don't quite have the memory for it. But uh, one of my co-hosts at the Let's Talk Bitcoin show talks about this in terms of the early Internet and the early uh, intranets that many corporate players would deploy before they would have a presence on, on the Internet and thinks that this is much the same thing, that this is a step where they are becoming comfortable with the technology because ultimately it's not the technology part that's really the empowering thing. What's really empowering about Bitcoin, and it's kind of the shabby secret of the banking world, is that it's a neutral network and those don't exist uh, really anywhere else. So banks can recreate blockchains that act as proprietary networks that act as settlement layers between them and their customers or them and their you know them and other banks perhaps uh, but it's very difficult for a single bank or a consortium of banks to create a platform that is really neutral where every player is treated the same on it because that's historically not what they do 
They create closed platforms that they then monopolize and work with partners. And so you can do some things on that. But if you're inviting in other banks, for example, to take part of your platform, that's something you can't do. You actually do need a neutral layer where you don't have to trust any of the kind of uh, operators of it. And so that's what you get with Bitcoin that, as far as I can tell, you don't get with anything else. And of course, you also get the disintermediation of responsibility with Bitcoin. If something happens uh, in the Bitcoin code, it's very, very difficult to pin down who's responsible for that. Or you know, if someone should be held legally liable, who that should be. Should it be the developers? Should it be the people who are operating the software? It, it, there's no originating company or originating entity. And so it's very difficult to track back responsibility for that. But you look at you know, any of these proprietary solutions, and it's very easy to track it back. Because these are for-profit you know, projects that have companies that oftentimes have venture funding uh, backing them. And so, again, like you don't get the advantage of that. So the thing that you get with private blockchains, and it definitely is valuable, but I just don't think it's the, it's the point, um, you, get, uh, uh, you get chain of custody and the ability to track very deeply in a pseudonymous way, right? So you, you're using account numbers that aren't necessarily attached to names. So you can do stuff like that. But banks don't actually care about that. Banks need identity information associated with everything they do because that's how the rest of the monetary system works. Uh, just today... I uh, tried to spend, I think, $25 on Skype credit using uh, my credit card. And I, I never use credit cards or anything like that anymore. Uh, uh, my wife does almost all of that. And so every time I find, uh, again, today... So you're, you're, you're 100% Bitcoin? I, I actually just try and stay away from money as much as possible. I, I, I'm a total hermit. And, uh, and if I can uh, not use money myself, you know, if, if I can just focus on other things, then that's that's all good for me. Um, but how, what it means? So how, how do you how do you make transaction? Well, uh, to be perfectly honest with you, I I just work. <laughs> I just uh, oh, okay. stay here right. and work. So that's that's kind of thing. When I do, um, you know, make transactions, oftentimes I use Bitcoin. But honestly, I just like for the last six months or nine months, I just don't really spend any money. It's sort of interesting. Um, <laughs> first time in my life it's happened. Um, I lost my train of thought, though. Right. Oh, uh, we're talking about uh, blockchain technology, and you're talking about how you use uh, credit right. cards. Right. Skype. Yeah. So, so anyway, so I tried to spend. Uh, so one thing that you can't spend Bitcoin for yet is you can't buy Skype credit. It's amazing. They have 13 different payment options, and none of them are cryptocurrency. So, um, so I tried to use my credit card this morning, and the payment failed. And then I used my wife's card and it worked fine. But in using the credit card, using my credit card that hadn't been used in about four months, I actually triggered alarms at the bank that wound up having them uh, temporarily shut down our account while they did the fraud investigation. So that's a perfect example of how the current system being entirely identity based basically really require it needs to know what you're doing with your money. It needs to be able to predict what you're going to do with your money because otherwise there's no actual assurance that the person who's spending the money is actually the person who should be able to spend the money. And the way the system works is that if you, if you know you spend someone else's money, the person whose money you spent isn't responsible for that in large part because the system can't protect against it before the fact. So with Bitcoin, again, that problem is completely gone. The money is there, and there, you don't have to worry about somebody else protecting it. The, the blockchain protects it. So, uh, yeah, so I mean, like, so there are advantages to these private blockchains. And I think we're going to see purpose-specific blockchains, not specifically in the banking sector. Uh, I think that, you know, uh, we're already starting to see people want to store lots of different things on blockchains, and they're not all going to fit on the one blockchain, and they're not all going to fit on the Bitcoin. 
So in all likelihood, what we're going to see is purpose-specific blockchains that can interact with each other, where you can send a token from one blockchain to another, and it'll go through some type of conversion process. Um, that's really where I think we're going in the medium term. Um, but for now, you know, uh, for now, the focus is on banks because that's where the money is. And yes, for people out there that don't understand the blockchain technology, uh, could you lay it down for them in layman term? <laughs> it's kind of hard. Yeah, it is. Um, so, so blockchain technology can be kind of best thought of as a double entry ledger. And right. uh, what a double entry ledger basically means is that uh, you put down two sets of numbers and you can track long uh, chains of custody, right? You can track the money goes from here to here, from here to here, from here to here, from here to here. And you can do that not just on an individual, like you're not tracking a single dollar, you can track down to eight decimal places. So it means that you can have uh, very long chains of custody that are easy to publicly verify, right? Where you can, even if you aren't the owner of it, so long as you know the addresses that were involved, you can check and verify every single transaction. So at the core, that's kind of what the, what the blockchain technology is about. It's about creating long-term records that can then be checked against and verified both by the parties that, that you know, put them together, but also by third parties if a little bit of information about that transaction is shared with those third parties. So um, the other advantage that Bitcoin brings is that it's a decentralized network, and you know, this is true for any of these blockchains, is that it's not just about that record being stored in one place. It's about that record being stored redundantly in the computers of every person that is running the software. So again, blockchain technology is a way to have secure, verifiable uh, data that is uh, stored robustly, right? So you can have half the computers in the network that are storing this data fail, and you don't actually lose any data. Um, and I mean, th that's, that's the basic value proposition of these two things. Um, is there a different direction you want me to take that answer? No, that, that's fine. Okay. I get I, people ask me that question all the time, and I it's, it's a hard question, honestly, because it's a very uh, technical structure. Yeah, it is very. It took me a very long time to understand Bitcoin and blockchain technology and what it does. It took me a while. I'll I'll admit it, but that, that's good. Thank you. Um, so let's shift gears here. I want to talk about cryptocurrency or Bitcoin and its role in our economic uh, environment right now. A lot of people. Well, I, I take a step back. I interviewed uh, Jeffrey Tucker. I don't know if you heard of him. He's a big fan of, of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. And he thinks that uh, Bitcoin can be a viable alternative currency and a good hedge against the paper fiat currency that we have in this country and country around the world so people can protect their wealth. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, I have a lot of respect for Jeffrey. And uh, I think Bitcoin does function and is going to increasingly function as a global opt-out. Uh, the idea being that, you know, if you live in a world that has the euro and you're, you know, using the Greek drachma in a, you know, in a, in, a, uh, in this type of an environment, uh, if you could change into the euro, well, that's a lot more stable. It provides a lot more security. But the problem is, is that around the world, currencies are kind of all in this synchronized uh, descent. It's the opposite of a rising tide lifts all boats. Um, and so Bitcoin kind of stands aside as one of the options that because it's been forced outside of the existing financial system, 
Uh, on the one hand, it's very difficult to convert money into Bitcoin. It's quite onerous uh, compared to most other things you're going to do. Um, but it means that it's kind of insulated from these otherwise systemic shocks. And so I actually got interested in Bitcoin because I was interested in gold uh, shortly after the 2007 uh, you know, uh, issues with Lehman uh, and started looking for alternatives at that point and really came to understand that the gold markets were very heavily manipulated. And over time, that's become less of a conspiracy theory. Um, but it was what drove me in because the, the reason why gold or something like it can be manipulated is because people don't trade the, the actual object. They trade the paper representations of it. And the thing about Bitcoin is that it's just as cheap to accept delivery of your Bitcoin as it is to settle with your Bitcoin, right, to, to convert it into the cash. It's actually more convenient because you're going to have to wait several days to get the, the money if you're trying to take it out. Um, whereas, again, with the Bitcoin, they can just send it to you and you can have it in, you know, 20 minutes. So... Uh, so that's kind of uh, what led me into Bitcoin early on. And I think that as time has gone on, uh, you know, we've seen that Bitcoin isn't immune to that, but it's it's different. It acts differently than gold does. They don't appear to be able to push it around or push around the price in quite the same way that they are with so many other commodities that are traded on kind of more abstracted markets. So we do have, um, you know, there are Bitcoin derivatives, there are contracts that settle for cash at this point, which is not something I was convinced we would see. But I guess it just kind of shows that we're in this bridge period right now, where the Bitcoin isn't as valuable as the cash. Yeah, and I'm all for competing currencies. If people want to own dollar that's dying every day, go ahead. If people want to buy gold and silver or just want to buy Bitcoin, yeah, that, that, that's fine. Uh, so I, th I think uh, the economy would would function better if we had a competing currency rather than the government monopolizing the uh, um, money supply. It depends on what you mean by functioning better, right? <laughs> I think that the uh, there, are, there are certain people who view the economy as functioning just fine. It's, it's doing exactly what it's intended to. It's, it's you know, uh, channeling resources from certain parts of the economy to other parts of the economy that in hindsight have turned out to be not very productive parts of the economy. So I think that that's kind of the thing is that, you know, we live in a world that, for better or worse, is completely, completely captured by all of the institutions that occupy it. And that, you know, shows up everywhere you look, but especially in the kind of financial space. So, again, Bitcoin represents an alternative. And I think that as time goes on, you know, the focus on blockchain from banks really has had a normalizing effect where now you go to financial, you know, fintech conferences and it's not controversial to be working on something blockchain related. It's actually getting to be a little bit, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of, we're kind of moving past it, right? Because there have been so many startups in the last year that have really uh, chosen to focus down on this uh, financial services for banks built on top of cryptocurrency thing. And as a result of that, you know, people are getting more comfortable with it. And, and that really is what we need to have happen. It needs to stop being this new scary technology. Oh, why would I ever use email? That's not anything I would ever use. And become this thing where it's like, okay, well, you know, that's, that's fine. <laughs> that, that's fine. It's normal now. I've seen enough headlines. It's, it's not a big deal. Yeah, I mean, any new, new technology that comes into society, it takes a while for people to generally accept it. I mean, probably it happens with the Internet. It happened probably with cars. Uh, back then, it took a while for people to accept it and buy it and start using it. So cryptocurrency and Bitcoin will eventually get there. If they're useful, they are. And they seem to be useful. Again, you know, there have been lots of opportunities for failure. There have been lots of people, you know, my current is just kind of the latest one, to say that Bitcoin is a failed project. 
and it keeps, you know, chugging along. So, and I mean, the flip side is that even if Bitcoin, assuming for a second, was a failed project, even if it is going to collapse tomorrow or something like that, I don't really think that that's the end of cryptocurrency. I think that's just kind of the end of this bubble that we've been in where Bitcoin and, and in cryptocurrency kind of emulates the U.S. dollar where it is the de facto thing that you would go into because why wouldn't you? It's the biggest and there are all kinds of advantages to participating in that. But if Bitcoin is ever to fail, that doesn't mean that there will be, you know, like another cryptocurrency that will become the 90 percent, you know, uh, market share uh, uh, victor. Uh, Instead, what we're going to see is the popping of this. There can be only one bubble and instead people will gravitate towards systems that can serve their needs best. And there are different types of cryptocurrencies out there that can serve different types of needs. And this is increasingly more true as time goes on. So the thing that will become important then is how well do these different protocols and different layers talk to each other and how convenient is it to work back and forth between them? And also, I mean, like that also solves the capacity problem because it means that, okay, well, if all these different types of blockchains can talk to each other and they're all compatible, then if you need more capacity, just start up another blockchain, right? So, I mean, like these, these solutions are coming and it's not because, you know, it's not because someone is saying that they have to come. It's because they are needed and they are possible and that's new and it's exciting. Yeah, I I agree. So uh, one final question before I let you go. I want to talk about the government and Wall Street attitude and perception toward Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Now, I know government doesn't like Bitcoin because it's hard to track. So mm. it's hard to, to, you know, find out who's laundering money or who's, you know, using uh, cryptocurrency for, you know, illegal activities or terrorist activities and i know wall street hate bitcoin because you know they're getting fat and happy with u.s dollars and they don't want anything else uh ruining their you know happy days so i just want to get your thought have the attitude changed in the, over the years yeah yeah they have um it's both part of the normalizing and the other main part is when you look at any type of monopoly and you say right. can this change then the question you're really asking is, does this change benefit the people who operate the monopoly? And if the answer is yes, then yes, it's a system that could potentially change. And if the answer is no, if you're disintermediating the people who have the power to say no to you uh, or to stop the change, then obviously not. So that's where we are now, is that uh, all of these different entities out there are figuring out ways to make the technology work for them. And at the point that it starts to work for them and they think that they have a meaningful advantage in kind of getting going, now uh, then it will suddenly become legal. So there's all this background positioning that's going to take place and that is taking place right now. Um, I think that uh, I don't really think that Wall Street or the government have really had a problem with this. I think that if you look around the world, you'll see that governments and central banks are, are going in this direction, are moving to their own cryptocurrencies. And in large part, it's because it benefits them. It's because in a world of, of 0% interest rates, uh, the idea that you would have cash or the idea that you would uh, transact on a non-digital platform is basically what you said about Bitcoin. It's hard to, you basically can't track money laundering, you can't track transactions. But if you're on a cryptocurrency, you actually can Right. Every like I said, it's just a big ledger that records the, the history of the entire network for the over the entire network. Right. Every different Bitcoin or whatever type of cryptocurrency is on the blockchain. 
um, can be tracked through its entire lifetime. So actually, it's the opposite of what you said. The, the one thing that, that makes it so that's not a terrifying, scary thing on a normal blockchain like Bitcoin is that in order to, for that information to be useful, you have to be able to say, all right, this Bitcoin address connects with this user, with, you know, with Mo.Dewood. Right. So so this these equate to each other. And then once you, you know this is Mo in the blockchain, then you can track that all the way back. But so long as you don't know it's Mo, you can track it back, but you can't actually but it doesn't mean anything to you. There's no name or identity attached to it. So that's the thing that that that, um, that I suspect will be different is that the anonymity or the pseudon uh, pseudonymity will be the thing that is removed from these future protocols. And it'll be done to fight money laundering. Um, and uh, and it'll be proactive transparency. And there are other ways that you could do it, but that seems kind of like the most likely path forward at this point. Um, whether people accept it or not, totally different question. But if the you know People's Bank of China comes out with their own cryptocurrency and says this is legal tender, uh, it's going to be very difficult for that not to get an enormous amount of traction. So right, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think the government is starting to embrace cryptocurrency only because uh, they're trying to move away from using cash and they want the society to become a cashless society so they can track every transaction easier because they can't track uh, transactions using cash, obviously. And they've been talking about getting rid of a $100 bill. So I think they're starting to embrace Bitcoin just for that reason. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think, you know, again, when it benefits the powers that be, that is the point at which it will become, you know, accepted by the powers that be. And that's what, you know, we had a conversation a year and a half ago about what is legitimacy for Bitcoin, right? Does Bitcoin require approval from, you know, monopoly authorities or from governments or from large corporations or from banks or whatever? And the answer is no, it doesn't. But it'll happen a lot faster if it does, because there are a lot of people out there outside of these institutions who do value their opinion and do value their judgment and do want to support what they do. So, you know, it's a good thing and it's a bad thing. It's more normal. But on the other hand, it's potentially pushing this into applications where, you know, from the perspective of people who don't want to have their money, you know, taxed in the way that we've, uh, you know, that, that you see in a negative interest rate environment uh, where, where it's, it's another way that you can't protect yourself. So, right. again, I think the cryptocurrencies bring some benefits when they're used in this way, but the, com the compelling reasons to adopt them, especially if there's a competitive global market, right? If Bitcoin is available and you can use either Bitcoin or, you know, China communist coin, then chances are good you're going to pick Bitcoin uh, because you trust the, the long-term management and you trust the fundamentals of that more than you trust something that could potentially be changed by a governing body at the, you know, at, uh, in China. Um, uh, yeah, so, so again, that's going to be kind of the wild card is do we see these currencies introduced as the better alternatives, the freer alternatives are being like banned or persecuted, or do they actually get to compete? I think that if they compete, then even if there are, uh, even if there are, you know, currencies out there that are potentially despotic, like, like I just described, it won't matter because people will have good options and it's very easy to trade from one cryptocurrency to another. So that's the only kind of negative scenario that I potentially see is if the introduction of these state-sponsored currencies comes with uh, a banning or a crackdown, a substantial crackdown um, on the existing system. Okay, I, I agree. So, um, well, Adam, thank you for your time. It's been great talking to you again. So people want to find out more about your work and your podcast. Uh, where can they go? 
You can find me at letstalkbitcoin.com. We move down to releasing episodes once a week, but there are uh, seven other shows uh, on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network uh, at letstalkbitcoin.com that publish just about every day a week. Um, so there's always a lot of content. If you're looking to kind of dig into the more technical side or more community side, different shows kind of focus in different places. And then about a year ago, I started a company called Tokenly that is, uh, we don't build blockchains or anything like that. Um, there are other protocols that exist on top of Bitcoin, one called Counterparty in particular, that allows anyone to, for a couple of cents and a couple of minutes, um, create their own type of branded token that works on the Bitcoin blockchain and that can be traded uh, in Bitcoin addresses and has kind of all the advantages with none of the costs of actually operating a blockchain. And so the, oppor the opportunity that I saw with that company um, and with tokens is that while Bitcoin, it's hard to distinguish it from money, it's actually very easy to distinguish a token built on Bitcoin that represents a haircut, right? Uh, redeemable for one haircut or redeemable for $20 off a haircut with this particular uh, merchant. And so what you wind up with uh, is uh, tokens that look a lot more like gift certificates, which have a different basis in law and which clearly are not currency. And then there are, there are kind of other opportunities, too. You can create tokens or you can create these same tokens that actually act as tradable passwords, where uh, I have access to something on you know, a website that, that has sold me this, this access token. But if I send it to you, then I no longer have access, but you do have access. So there are different kind of non-currency ways to use tokens. Um, and I, I've been really kind of pushing down this path because I saw about a year ago that if Bitcoin was just recognized as money, then it was going to be treated as money. And as a result, there was going to be a really big kind of cost to entry if you wanted to do anything with a token because every token is treated like money. But if we kind of got away from that idea and started using tokens for other things uh, where, where the advantages are meaningful, right? Because on the Internet, we've never really had the concept of digital ownership. When you buy something... Uh, online, like a song or something, you're not buying a copy of the song, you're buying a perpetual non-transferable license to that song, which means that unlike when you buy a CD, you're not allowed to resell it, you're not allowed to give it to someone else, you're not allowed to share it with anybody else. Um, and that's because there's no such thing as that physical copy that when you give it to someone else, you no longer have it. But if you're using tokens, branded tokens created by the artists, in order to kind of represent that physical access, then you can have all of that stuff. And where on the internet to this point, we've had affiliate relationships, you can have reseller relationships where people can buy quantities of your, you know, again, talking about music, quantities of your digital album in bulk, get a better price and then resell them to other people. Uh, you know, so, so there's kind of all, all of these different opportunities and uh, the stuff that we've been building with Tokenly is really all about trying to enable those both for ourselves and for other people. Uh, you can learn more about Tokenly at Tokenly.com. And it's an open source project. Well, that's an interesting idea. So we'll have to get you back on later this year and give us an update on how that's going. Anytime, Mo. Right, well, Adam, thank you uh, for your time. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. The magic word for today's episode is main. That's M-A-I-N. You've got until the 5th of March to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. Any questions or comments could be emailed to adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. See you next time.